music. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Um, so it is so good to have you here this morning. What a beautiful day. I was trying to think of what, is there a better day to come into the Lord's building than to worship him on Christmas morning? And so I thank you for bearing the elements and working around your schedules and family and all of that to be with us today. And for those of us, those of you that are joining us online, welcome as well. So I want to uh, open us with a passage here, but before I do that, let me just give one quick announcement. So most of us are going to be receiving gifts around this time of the year, right? So, and perhaps today. And one of the gifts are surrounding me here. This is like the adopt the poinsettia day. So, so the one thing I will ask of you is this, these need to go, they look so beautiful. I don't even know who was behind all of this, but Don was behind all of this? Don Wagner. Don Wagner. Them Wagners again, huh? Um, so it, it, uh, it's beautiful, but they can all go. So after the service, don't do that until Pastor Tim finishes with us today, um, but uh, please uh, feel free to take them as our gift to you. And let me read a passage as we begin here from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I was thinking about that today. In the increase of his government, so his rulership, and his peace. And I was thinking, how many people today lack that peace, lack that joy? I was just talking to friends yesterday about how many Christians, even those of us that know Christ, the struggle with peace, hope, and joy in this time of the year. Don't let anything obscure you from worshiping Christ today and praising him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, I, I still cannot comprehend that the, the God that spoke this world into existence became a babbling baby. I just, that just is so com incomprehensible to me. The God who, who just with his touch of the world, touch to the world, Father created life and brought life, took on a human body, encased himself in a woman's body, and lived 33 years here on this earth like one of us. Most of that time we don't even know, Father. I just I can't even comprehend what your son did for us. I can't comprehend that he walked every single day for our righteousness. I can't comprehend that the sinless one took on sin. I can't comprehend that the giver of life died for us. But I can comprehend that risen Savior. I can comprehend the, the God who sits above us and the God that we will one day, as Pastor Doug preached last week, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let us worship him well today, in Jesus' name, amen. Come to all the people. 
Father, we are grateful for this uh, glorious day uh, when we can fix our mind on the incarnation of Christ. And Lord Jesus, the, uh, the reality of this uh, is a bit much for us to comprehend. Uh, we, by faith, receive this truth. God came in flesh to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we could be forgiven and set free. So Lord, this morning I pray that by your spirit we would know that truth and we would see how it should change our daily lives. And we pray that that blessing would come to us today because of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray together and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, the book of 1 John. So this is a, uh, a text that perhaps isn't commonly spoken of um, on Christmas morning, but I think it's one that will be an encouragement to your hearts as you uh, contemplate the message uh, that lies within it. About a week and a half ago, we went to uh, a concert with some friends. It was a secular concert. It was a very nice event, and uh, a lot of... uh, Songs were played that I am very familiar with from the Christmas season. So as the music was being played, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking through all the various truths that are taught in those songs. And I found myself in this setting wishing that Christ was central, like intentionally placed at the center of what was happening, as opposed to me having to bring Jesus in from my recollection of the lyrics of the songs that were being played. Towards the end of the uh, event, there were about 4,000 people in this venue. At the end of the event, the the leader kind of paused and then he started to share uh, what we needed to remember in this season and reflected on the fact that none of this event would have been possible apart from a certain individual. And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, is this guy really going to talk about Jesus? <laughs> right? In, in that setting, is that, is that where this is going? Okay? And uh, unfortunately, that was not the case. <laughs> okay? And he said, though, you know, the person this is all about and what we really need to remember is the person that created this elaborate orchestral event. And I said to the friends that went with me as we were driving home, I said, what an incredible letdown that was. <laughs> or it was just like, I was like, wait, did something like happen to this guy this year? Because I heard him last year and none of this got said. And then it didn't get said anyhow, uh, which just was like, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful in the midst of such a beautiful setting and powerful setting to exalt and proclaim the name that is above all names. And I hope for you that you, I hope you enjoy the season, I hope you enjoy the poinsettias, okay? I'm not gonna judge you if you come and take a poinsettia, okay? (laughs) But these are the trimmings, right? Or the garnish, they're not the main course. Uh, the, the trees, the, 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 the familiar secular songs that we sing, all of the things that we find to be so enjoyable and should, okay? I have no problem with that enjoyment, but when that enjoyment eclipses or worse, displaces, okay, it becomes something that we should be concerned about as believers, that we keep the focus on the main thing, on the main purpose of this season. I was thinking as the ladies were playing, I heard the bells this morning, and I was thinking about being in a movie theater. I think it was four weeks ago, my wife and I went to see the movie put up by Sight and Sound called I Heard the Bells, okay? And, and it, it was a beautiful thing to sit in a public movie theater and hear the name of Christ exalted in 
in what perhaps is one of the most powerful fashions, right? Because movie and theater can bring truth to life in a way that we, we imagine it, we try to get it, but when you see it and see it declared in such powerful ways, it's so heartwarming and encouraging because it is true, right? And it's not simply my emotions disturbed, but then I'm gonna leave. I've thought about that movie a number of times since then because of the deep reflection it caused in my heart to think about the, the, the beauty that God came in flesh and he came to reconcile us and one day he will reconcile all things, the Bible says. And that, that story, if I heard the bells, is written in a world of pain and the brokenness of the civil war that was coming and, and all of the hurt of slavery and all those things. And the hope was found in the fact that one day God will return the person of his son and everything that is wrong will be made right and everything that is not as it should be will be as it should be. And that is a hope that will sustain you not simply on a holiday or in a season, but it will sustain you in your life because there are certain truths that emerge from scripture concerning the person of Christ that I hope we can read into our experience of the holiday, okay? That we fill it with truth. We give it a story, we give it meaning that is life-changing and that can be shared with great joy with people around us. So Christ's birth is a great story, but without the rest of the story, it remains empty. Okay, and James spoke on this last night from Luke chapter two, right? When the shepherds are invited to see the scene at the manger, to see God in flesh and to be amazed and stunned by what they see and hear, that in the midst of that, the angel says to them, I bring you good news of great joy for all people that bound up in, in this supernatural, unexplicable event, can't put it in words. There is a truth that Christ is a savior for all people. And that is at the heart of our celebration. And that's hinted at repeatedly, even in the narrative, as Mary contemplates giving birth to the son of God, she says, my heart rejoices in God. What does she say? My savior. Okay, so, 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 so in the midst of that scene that is stunning and amazing, this virgin birth, there is a truth that God has become man to live the life we could never live and to die the death that we deserve to die. And as a result, we are liberated and we are given certain truths that will change our lives, not only now, but will change our lives forever. The text that we're going to look at, 1 John 1, 1 to 4, is distinctly different in terms of a story or a narrative about Christmas. It really is in stark contrast to what you read in the Gospels about the coming of Christ. The Gospels, largely in, in, in Matthew and Luke, focus pretty heavily on the story, on the things that we tend to be profoundly familiar with. John's approach is more one of teaching and doctrine. So in, 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 in Matthew and Luke, it is historical narrative. It's an unfolding of a story. Okay, but when you read the gospel or the epistle of John, you find that it is a letter that is more didactic or teaching in nature than it is historical narrative in nature. Okay, but what John does is he reflects a little bit on the historical narrative from his own experience and hearing, and he brings that truth to us as an older disciple of Christ. He's now reflecting under the inspiration of the work of the Spirit, and he is teaching us what those events that are so powerful and beautiful, what they mean for our daily life and how deeply they can impact and change us. So let's read these verses together. First John 4, 1 to 4. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. This life appeared. The, some of your translations are going to say this life was manifested. It was somebody pulled back the curtain and exposed a greater reality. It appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and appeared to us. And I want you folks to realize that is the manger scene. Okay, this life, which was with the Father, was manifest to us, made known, seeable, touchable, hearable, God. Verse three, he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may, and these are the outcomes, so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And then John says this, and I love this verse. He says, we write this to make your joy complete. So let's think through this account, this teaching on the coming of Jesus. It's interesting that John in 1 John starts with the same words that you find at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, the gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, so we find that when I get to 1 John, John's still hanging on to that same theme that begins the Bible, that starts his gospel, and that leads into his brief synopsis of the finished work of Christ. The word beginning, as it's used in all three cases, tends to be indicating the idea of the preexistence or divine nature of God that is ultimately manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so when John is is reflecting, that which was in the beginning, that is in the beginning God created, assumes that God existed prior to creation and is in fact himself responsible for all of creation and for the sending of his son. And that his son, according to John 1, was there in the beginning. So it starts to hint at these ideas of Trinity, right, of the God in three persons, eternal, okay, manifested in human flesh in time, okay, and that is what the incarnation is all about. Now, what is John doing in this text? John is giving a what some have called a sworn testimony. He is testifying to something he personally saw and experienced related to the person of Jesus Christ. So he he uses very heavy court language. In in these verses, you'll find on over 12 occasions, John is using plural pronouns. Okay, and the question would be, why does John do that? What John is saying is there were multiple historic witnesses to the truth that he is about to share. There is a a substantive historical set of facts upon which faith in Christ actually relies. Those things are recorded in the gospels for us by those that were eyewitnesses. Okay, so John is, he's reflecting on that. It's also interesting to note that in the use of this court language, when he says we heard, verse one, we saw, we looked at, we touched, right? John is talking about verifiable facts that he experienced and that he is an eyewitness to that. And it's interesting that in each case, when he says what I heard, what we saw, what we looked at, and what we touched, that every one of those verbs is in a very interesting tense. Okay, in the Greek, it's in what we call the perfect tense, meaning it's something that happened, but then that has an abiding consequence in the individual's life. Okay, it's very hard to express that in English because we don't really have that kind of an expression. You have to kind of use extra words to say it. I saw this event and it changed me forever. That's what John is saying. This week, we literally experienced this. Here's what's interesting. John, as he writes this letter, is 90 years old. He's 60 years beyond his three years of life with Jesus. And as he thinks back, he wants to give a sworn testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, and that is where the beauty of this text really begins to emerge in a very wonderful way. In verse one, he says that this testimony is something, look at the end of the verse. We are proclaiming this concerning the word of life. So he doesn't even use the name Jesus. He's reflecting on the terms that's used, term that's used in John chapter one. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. 
Right? What does John say? The word became flesh. God came in a human body, right? And he says, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, John 1.18, that is full of grace and truth. Meaning there is grace, there is a gift, and there is also truth about our sinfulness and about the hope that is found in Christ. So this event that John is reflecting upon in his personal experience, the word becoming flesh, us seeing the God who cannot be seen because he was made known to us in the person of Christ. John's reflecting, he's thinking. And all of that was made possible because of Christmas. Okay, and that's the part I hope that you can grasp. That those deeper truths that John reflects on in teaching are in a sense latent or present in a very quiet way in the incarnation, in the birth of Christ. And John says, I wanna take that birth narrative, I wanna make that come alive in your hearts. And that's what he's doing in this text in a beautiful way. I like to think through the encounter of the disciples with Jesus. We don't know how much of Jesus' life the disciples knew about in the first 30 years of Christ's life. We don't know the exact age of the disciples. So we have to assume they're encountering Christ somewhere in a relatively similar age bracket in their own lives. Okay, so they come along with Christ. They spend three years with him. And as they're with Christ, what is Christ doing? Christ is, is pulling back the veil of flesh so they can see who they are actually relating to. And that helps me to understand then what? What actually or who actually is residing in the manger on the night of Christ's birth. Okay, so Christ lives his life to make the Father known. That's what John says in John 1.18. He has revealed him to us. What was unknown has become touchable, seeable, hearable, feelable. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's, he's kind of sitting back in that. And I, I was, a few weeks ago, I was doing a, a Bible study with the teenagers. Okay, it was from Mark chapter four. It's the story where Jesus Christ is crossing the Sea of Galilee and they encounter a great storm. And the text says that the, the disciples were deeply afraid and then they cry out to Christ and they see him resolve the struggle that they're in. He gets up and he says to the sea, shh, right? And the text then says this, after the disciples saw this, they were terrified. Okay, and I want you to see what happened. They see Christ sleeping in the boat. They encounter a struggle. They cry out to Christ because they know that hope is found in him, but they are not fully aware yet of his full identity. And through the process of his three years of ministry, he continues to expose his true self, his true deity. And when they cry out to him about this physical need in nature, Christ stands up and says, peace be still. Nature immediately responds to his presence and they are then terrified. Okay, what are they thinking? They're thinking, did that just happen? Right, because what, the one that had come in flesh is, is, is giving them insight into who he is. And when they realize that they're in the presence of God himself, they become incredibly uncomfortable because they know themselves. But they don't yet fully know the purpose for which God has come in flesh. Does that make sense? So, so Jesus is slowly, because the full truth of Christ's person would have blown them away. Okay, when you come to the Mount of Transfiguration, you find this greater exposure of Jesus to Peter, James, and John, right? And when they see Christ manifested, as this text says, I mean, his full glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, they, they, don't need, they, they start blatant on the what to say, but they're starting to get it. And the ramifications of that begin to thrill their hearts and change their lives. And here's my concern, that in the Christmas season, we are enamored by Christ, but we're not changed by Christ. Folks, I want you to know something. Jesus did not come to be admired. He came to change you. Okay, so if all you do in the Christmas season is simply admire, you're missing the point. 
Should we admire? Yes. Should we adore? Yes, but those words in our culture fall so far short of the true intention of Christ's coming. He came to change your life. He came to change the world in which you live and one day he will come in, his, in the fullness of his glory and bring about a total transformation, a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And the first time that righteousness dwelt on earth was in the person of Christ. So if, if I, according to this text, I'm willing just to sit back and now meditate on those things. So he lays out the experience, verses one and two, what we saw, what we heard, what we touched, what we felt, all of that personal experience of the physical presence of God in Christ. John says that, if you, if you meditate on it, it's gonna change you. And that's why John writes the gospel. That's why he tells us the stories that he tells us of the actual work of Christ in historical narrative with relevant witnesses. He testifies to Jesus, but the question is why? And how is Christmas, the coming of Christ, supposed to change my life? That's the real question, isn't it? It's not the fact that he came. The question is why is that fact relevant for my life? And that's what John is going to expose for us in verses two through three. So the first thought is, that eternal life, verse two, which was with the Father, has appeared to us. It has been exposed, it has been made clear. And John says it is, that, it is to that which we give testimony. It is to that that we proclaim in such a beautiful way. Folks, here's the way I want you to think about this. Because Christ came, salvation is a gift from God. Okay, so when you look at the manger, what you should be thinking is that God has wrapped himself in human flesh and has come to give me a gift, and that gift means that my hope of life change is found in a person who is the gift of God, right? Isn't that what John 3.16 says? God so loved the world that he gave so I hope that as you give gifts, that you realize that every gift I can give ought to be inspired by the greatest gift that was ever given. And it should remind me, and should be given to remind others that you, do, you owe me nothing for this. This item that comes wrapped in a box has no invoice attached, because, not because it is free, but because it was paid by someone else. And it comes to you wrapped, which is to say, this is a gift. And this is the work of God, folks, at Christmas. He sent his son so that you and I could experience salvation, not as a result of our efforts, but as a gift from God. A gift that I didn't find. It's a gift that God manifested to us, that he made clear. John uses that word two or three times in this text. He is making this known to us. So salvation is a gift, it's by grace. It's for that reason that we would then extrapolate out of that, that Jesus is not a religious teacher. He's not someone that comes on the scene and says, okay, Blake Raider, if you wanna know me, here's the things you have to do. Here's the path you have to follow to achieve a relationship with God himself. Because in every world religion, that's what you will always find. There is always an individual who comes up with the path, and if you follow that path, you find life. You find hope. The danger of that is that if you think that salvation comes by keeping rules, it's gonna affect you in one of two negative ways. If you think salvation is by rule keeping and by transformation or reformation of your life, it will tend to make you proud. It will tend to make you arrogant. It will tend to make you judgmental of others, right? Does any, anybody know anybody like that? Right, we all have people around us like that, but we all tend to be like that, right? If I think that my status with God, my standing with God, my hope is rooted or grounded in my performance, I become a difficult person to live with. So I may tend to move upward in pride, but the opposite is also true. 
in my most transparent moment, what do I realize? That all of my effort falls short. And that causes me to fail like a failure religiously. And it leads to self-effacing behavior, detrimental behavior, because I can barely live with myself. Do you see the dilemma? You jump on the treadmill and you say, I'm gonna be spiritual and I'm gonna, I'm gonna run the spiritual marathon and I'm gonna crank out righteousness. I'm gonna crank out performance. I'm gonna crank out a relationship with God. I'm gonna achieve. It will either make you difficult to live with or it will make you self-loathing and painfully aware of your inadequacy, lacking the hope that you so desperately long for. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus Christ to deliver me either from my pride or from my defeated state. And in his grace, he offers me a gift. And it comes wrapped in human flesh on Christmas. And through the rest of his life, he exposes his glory, his righteousness, his holiness. And then he goes to a cross to bear what I should bear. And then says to me, I've paid the price for your sin. You can be forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? What a glorious message that now starts to ring truer, right? When I think of Luke 2.11, I bring you good news of great joy for all kinds of people, irregardless of their state, whether they are religious and proud or whether they are broken and demoralized. He spans that whole gap. And for the proud, what does his righteousness do? It destroys the righteousness that people cling to and it shows that it is deficient and that they need Jesus. Isn't that the Apostle Paul? And it takes someone like Zacchaeus, who we can only assume was a self-loathing tax collector. He knew what everybody thought about him and he knew it was true. But when God comes in flesh, he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. He and the disciples are blown away. And Jesus goes, and there the religious establishment accuses the one that came in flesh, God in flesh, of being a friend of sinners. And Jesus' response is, that's why I came. And that's the hope that we have, folks. Look, I know this. We all tend to be religious. We all tend, even if I believe in the gospel of grace, there's something in me that wants to recommend myself to God through what I've done. And Christmas aims to destroy that. And the only reason I would ever strive to live the life that God calls me to live is out of love for him and out of the desire to express gratitude to him. Same as when I open a gift that blows me away, that, that stuns me. I don't pull out my checkbook. I express gratitude. Right? And, 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 and that's what Christmas aims to do. I add nothing to my salvation, and I need add nothing because in his love, God sent his son. And his son is adequate. He is enough for my saving. That's verse two. Look at verse three then. I apologize this morning. I have a cold, so I knew this would be a little issue, okay? Uh, so let's look at verse three. It says this, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Okay, so John says, we're, we experienced Christ in a historical setting with real facts. We are proclaiming that to you. We, and the idea of proclaiming is different than storytelling. Okay, when I'm proclaiming something to you, I'm more in the role of a coach or a preacher. My desire is that you would hear truth that would solicit or elicit from you a response. John is not simply reflecting on Jesus. He is reflecting on Jesus for the purpose of life change, for the early church probably to inspire hope in the midst of their suffering. And he goes back to the beginning, to the birth of Christ to do it. And he talks about his experience with God in flesh as the means of encouraging the hearts of these people. So he now proclaims, verse three, what we have seen and heard, and then the next words are what? 
so that. All right, this is the aim of everything that is being shared. So that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. It's interesting how he says that, isn't it? We proclaim this, we're sharing this so that you can share in communion something that is rich and precious to us. And then he gives clarity to it. What is it, John, that is rich and precious to you? He says, we want you to have communion with us because we have communion with the Father. And if you are sharing in what we're sharing, you're coming to know the Father. And God in his grace has called you into relationship. Folks, do you understand the power of this? That the God who was manifest in flesh in the context of the Trinity is exposing you to the glory of God the Father so that you find the ultimate family experience that can never be broken. And John says, we've been reflecting on that. John sitting in Patmos in a prison is reflecting on that truth that God is with me, that he is my father, that I am in fellowship with him. Because of Christmas, we can have fellowship with God and with each other. And I love how this text moves from the horizontal, right, to from what we love and enjoy. And I hope that you are enjoying this season with friends and family, and there's something that we look forward to in those traditional events, right? When we get together, there's a beauty in that, especially if it is Christian fellowship because it goes so much deeper. But that fellowship aims to do something. It aims to, up, to turn my eyes upward. And that's what John, John's saying, I hope you come into this communion with us, but I hope when you get there, it causes you to love the Father more because we are related as brothers and sisters because of the work of our heavenly father through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so don't miss the beauty of that. Christ coming aims to bring you into a family and John wants you to taste of that deeply so that it produces something that is so deep that it can be called communion. Folks, do you know that one of the biggest problems in the world that we live in is loneliness? I, 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 I didn't get a chance to look up some of the recent statistics that I saw, but the, the feeling of isolation that people have, often from various lifestyles and things like that, but most of the loneliness that people feel is usually due to their brokenness and shame. And all of us can probably relate to that. We know times when we have had failings in our lives that leave us embarrassed. And when we're embarrassed, what do we tend to do? We tend to pull back. In our shame, we tend to isolate. Isn't that what happens in Genesis 3? God creates, puts Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. There they violate the law of God and feel a sense of exposure, of nakedness. And God comes in the cool of the day. In that setting, in, a, in the form of a spirit, he comes. And he pleads, he cries out, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And Adam's response is, we hit ourselves. Here's what I want you to realize. It is God who comes seeking in the beginning. And in the birth of Christ, it is God who comes seeking to save that which is lost. What is he seeking to bring you out of? He's seeking to bring you out of your shame and loneliness into a brotherhood and sisterhood that is rightly called a family over which he resides as father. And in the gospel, what is Christ doing? He is destroying everything that separates us from each other and he is destroying everything that keeps us from God himself and that relationship with him as father. That's what he's doing. He's removing the hostility and the the brokenness that is so clearly pronounced. So what happens? Sin breaks my relationship on this level, but sin ruins my relationships on this level, doesn't it? And I'm sure we, every, every, probably every person in this room could say, yeah, I've got a set of relationships in my life or a relationship in my life where the brokenness is so deep and either I am at fault or I'm not at fault, doesn't matter. The truth is just that all of us know that. I know it here with God. But the truth is I also know it here. 
And I can look at times and see where my brokenness caused it, and I can see at times where someone else's brokenness caused it. Truth is, we end up in loneliness and isolation. The gospel comes to bring us into a new family. Because my personal cravings and desires tend to destroy what God created. That's why James 4.2 says this, what causes fights among you? Isn't it your desires and cravings that wage war in your members? Can you relate to that? I mean, there's something about me, if someone jades me, if someone disrupts my life, my plans, my initial reaction is not love. My initial reaction is payback because I'm very religious. And I forget that I'm rightly related to God and you because of his son, Jesus Christ. And that has a devastating consequence in my life. Until you're honest with God and with yourself, you will remain isolated and lonely. But Christmas comes to annihilate the isolation and loneliness. And it seeks to attract you back to what God created you for. And that was life together and ultimately life with him. Colossians 1.19, just think about what this says. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood. Do you see Christmas in that? God was pleased to make all his fullness dwell in flesh so that in that flesh he could reconcile all things to himself by making peace, that is, by annihilating annihilating the hostility, the guilt, the shame through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So the forgiveness that I need to come boldly to the throne of grace is found where? In the work of Christ, who came in a manger first, veiled in human flesh to pursue a cross for my forgiveness. And he makes me right with God, but then it moves further. He removes all hostility. He aims to reconcile all things through his blood. So your Christian life, if you know this, you know this relationship with God, excellent, that's beautiful. Thank God for that. That is first exposed by a gift of grace. That's what Christmas is about, right? But secondly, he aims to bring you into fellowship with others. And in that fellowship, my fellowship with God goes to a whole new level. We want you to have fellowship with us, John says, and our fellowship is with the Father. He's inviting you into something, but he's gonna send you somewhere. Isn't that beautiful? So when you think of fellowship, don't think of hamburgers and deviled eggs, okay? That's what we tend to, yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna eat, okay? And we call that fellowship. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is communion. It is deep, intimate life sharing. I have a a dear friend who uh, got to spend a couple hours with a few weeks ago who uh, has exemplified for me this truth. Someone who is fellowshipping with God through pain and their fellowship with God is an invitation in because how they're using it and responding to it. You understand what I'm talking about? And it's only in Christian fellowship, in Christian communion, in this deep savoring of Christ, that I can find that kind of hope in relationship. Okay? So I I hope that you will, in this new year, allow God to take Christmas and allow it to affect you like it affected his disciples. They knew that God had called them into a community. And that community's purpose was to exalt and glory in God who sent his son in human flesh to change this. Okay? Let that seep in and happen. And the last thought that he comes to in verse four, and I just, this is something that just caught me when I read this. It says, we write this, to make our joy complete. 
I want you to think about that for a second. Because what's the first thing that comes to mind? I could accuse John here of what? In a sinful realm. What can I accuse him of? Selfishness. John says, we're writing this to you to make our joy complete. So I could say, well, it sounds like John's being very self-serving in the fulfillment of his role as an apostle of Christ. Yeah, but, but, okay, be honest. It would be impossible to read this verse in context and come up with that conclusion, right? It's very clear that John has found something in fellowship with God and with others that is so deeply changing him that he finds joy in its sharing, right? So have you ever thought, why in the Old Testament does God say to his people, let the redeemed of the Lord say so? And I think the answer is this, that our greatest joy in Christ is found in proclaiming it. Right? And I think that's why God calls us to come together and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, because there is something about Christian joy that is stoked. It breathes oxygen into the fire of Christian faith when you proclaim the work of Christ. I, my personal experience is this. When I have opportunities to share the gospel of grace with someone who is conscious of their need and, use, and the light goes on for them, they see that they're a rebel deserving of God's judgment, but that he speaks of his love. He sent his son into the world, the man Christ Jesus, who always lived under God's rule, but by dying in your place, took your punishment and brings forgiveness, hope, reconciliation, life with God and life with others. There's something when you share that and you see it illuminate a face, when you see the lights go on, there is nothing in life that compares to that. Which begs the question, why are we so quiet? And I think it's because we forget that he was manifest to destroy sin and to reconcile all things. And we are his, Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians, we are his ambassadors. We have been given a message that we cannot contain. And when we do what God called us to do, to share that message, our joy is affirmed. It's, and what John is saying here, it's brought to a different level. It's made complete. So I hope this, that as we have sung the songs of Christmas, that you have said, God, let me reflect. Let me think about this amazing message that I am proclaiming so that my joy may be full not for my personal benefit, but for the purpose of enhancing the fellowship into which God has called us and drawn us by his grace. John says we write these things to make our joy complete. We in this letter are proclaiming, and, and the idea of joy in this text is not the sediment, okay? It's not the feeling. It is the excitement that it generates in someone's heart. It is, joy is something that you, you can't have it in, in, in total quietness. It, it may be present in quietness. And I, I think at the birth of Christ, the Bible says that Mary pondered these things in her heart, right? She was stunned, amazed, and there had to be. My heart is rejoicing in God, my Savior, becomes the proclamation of the meditation. Do you see? She sat by that manger and was overcome my guess is that was a quiet reflection. But when she hears that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, she explodes by saying, my heart rejoices in God, my Savior. And that is recorded for our benefit so that we can see because of Christmas, you and I can have good news of great joy that is limitless in its reach, that is true for all people. And so after the shepherds had come to the manger scene and saw what they were told, what does the Bible say? It says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard, and experienced. They were overcome with the glory and beauty of what Christmas is really all about. 
And I think, honestly, that's the reason that the concert, I was so full of disappointment. Shared it with my friends driving home. I said, biggest letdown tonight, what was it? I was like, I thought that guy was going to say the name. That is above all names. The name that changes everything. And he simply reflected on a writer of music. And I thought, that's sad. I mean, it's okay. Give honor where honor is due, right? But if you're singing about Christ and you're playing about Christ, you better speak about Christ. Because in him, salvation is a gift. In him, we have fellowship with God and with one another. Fueling, fueling. And we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. So can I read for you a hymn? Because I had this funny thing happen. When I thought of this, I was looking at Hark the Howard Angel sing, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what the word hark means. All right, that'll show you how mentally challenged I am, okay? Obviously it means just listen. <laughs> but I actually was like, I just never even, I sing the song. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, notice this joy. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord in the beginning and preceding, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity, God in flesh. The word incarnate literally means the enfleshing of God, encarnas. He became visible. He became killable. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So that your fellowship may be with us and with the Father. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, the one who lives the life we could never live. Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Obviously not physical death, because that still happens. But he wants them to be freed from the penalty of their sin, because the wages of sin is death. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us second birth. So you're here this morning because you've experienced a first birth. Jesus came so that you could enjoy and experience a second birth. He does it by offering you a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. It comes through the price of his blood, which he shed on Calvary's cross so that you could be forgiven, but more brought into fellowship. And so that in that fellowship with him through his shed blood and your forgiveness, you can have a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So here's our prayer. God, help us this Christmas to treasure Jesus. Help us to look at the manger, but to realize it is veiled in flesh the Godhead see, who has come for our redeeming, our saving. And what he wants to do is not simply change your destiny. He wants to change your whole life. And this season, this celebration, is to that end. So Romans 8.3 says, what the law was powerless to do, rule-keeping religion, God did. By sending his son in human flesh to be a sacrifice for our sin. Folks, this is why we say this. Over the manger looms a shadow and the shadow is cruciform. Because self-consciously, 
That is why he came. And that is why throughout his life in the Gospel of John, he says, my hour has not yet come. Not yet, not yet, not yet. And then there's that change. As the cross is no longer a shadow, but it is a reality. And he looks at his disciples and says, my hour has come. And for this purpose, I came into the world. And John's, I think John would reflect on that and say that was a devastating moment. But it is the door to fellowship. It is the door to grace. And it is the door to joy. That can't be decimated by my failure. It may be obscured by my failure, but it cannot be destroyed by my failure. Because my joy is secure in the work of Christ. And I trust that you know that this Christmas. I trust that you know Christ and that you have received the gift which will change your life forever. And if you're a Christian, I hope that you will, as a result of this text, treasure these truths in your heart because they will change you all year. Father, as we pray this morning, we are mindful of the work of Christ which is overwhelming to us at many levels, but it is at the same time life-changing. It is mystifying and it is magnificent. It causes us to weep and it causes great joy. So as we sing our closing song this morning, help us to revel in Jesus, to rejoice in the fact that he came and to find our greatest joy in leaving this place this morning to tell others the glory of what Christ has done for us and in our lives. We pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You can stand with us if you would. Don't forget the poinsettias, they're your gift. Cheers.